Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Hey, everyone. I wanted to introduce a new podcast on the block that will certainly be of interest to listeners of Global Dispatches. The podcast is called Rethinking Humanitarianism. And today I'm going to play for you the debut episode of this 10-part series. The podcast is co-hosted by Heba Ali, director of the independent newsroom, The New Humanitarian, and Jeremy Kanondike, senior policy fellow at the nonprofit think tank, the Center for Global Development. I've followed the work of Heba and Jeremy for many, many years. They are two of my favorite and go-to thinkers and analysts in the global humanitarian space, and now they have a podcast. Their series taps into some of the deep soul-searching that has taken place in the aid industry in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and the COVID-19 pandemic. Their show is a space for some in-depth conversation about big changes that are underway in the aid industry. This is a podcast series for anyone with an interest in the future of humanitarianism, from donors to NGO executives, from frontline responders to policy wonks. Basically, if you have an eye on the aid sector, this podcast is for you. So I'm glad to present the debut episode to you, which features Danny Sri Skandaraja, Oxfam Great Britain's chief executive, helping Heba and Jeremy frame current events and pick apart what change in the aid sector might look like. I think you'll enjoy this episode. To subscribe to this new podcast, please search for The New Humanitarian wherever you listen to podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode or just visit tnh.news podcast. So here it is, the debut episode of The New Humanitarian. The world has changed pretty dramatically in the last few months. COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement have really shaken things up. And in the aid sector, they may dramatically change many of the things that have long been taken for granted. But it's not clear that this will be a turning point for crisis response. The humanitarian sector has been trying to reform for 15 years, but it still allocates money and power in much the same way as it did when I started this work 20 years ago. So will this moment fundamentally change how the aid sector does business? In Geneva, Switzerland, I'm Hiba Ali, director of The New Humanitarian. And in Washington, D.C., I'm Jeremy Kanandike, senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. We are your co-hosts for Rethinking Humanitarianism, a new podcast series exploring the future of aid. Jeremy and I have basically been having a friendly debate on this subject for years. I mean, I remember when you were heading up the uh, humanitarian aid team for the Obama administration, you know, tracking you down at conferences and grilling you on these kinds of questions. I do remember that. (laughs) Now you're friendly about it, of course. But at the time, I'm sure you were thinking, who is this pesky journalist who won't leave me alone? But it's kind of neat to see that pesky journalist and the former government official now in the same virtual podcast studio. And those debates have certainly shaped and informed my own views on the humanitarian sector. And part of what led us to doing this podcast was a feeling that there's a gap in that kind of dialogue about the future. So in this episode, our first, we're going to talk about this current rethink happening in the sector. 
You know, we've often seen in the past that expectations for change fall flat. The distribution of money and power in the sector are, are pretty resilient, actually, and it can be hard to predict what's going to drive big change versus a doubling down of the status quo. So will this moment trigger a genuine rethink of humanitarianism? Or as we've seen in the past, will it just tinker on the margins? Joining us today to talk about all that and to examine what a global reset might mean for the aid sector is Danny Sriskandaraja, the CEO of Oxfam Great Britain. Welcome, Danny. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Heba. So we're really excited to have you on the show today because you know, you're a longtime critic of the big, powerful NGOs and the big, powerful aid industry, yet now you're running part of that industry. Uh, you've been making some really interesting changes to how Oxfam operates and some changes that maybe give a preview of how big NGOs will operate in the future. And I think it's quite neat to hear from someone who hasn't been a lifetime humanitarian, so to speak. You know, you've had experience in many different corners of the, the wider um if I can call it social good world from your work as the head of Civicus, the civil society network, um, to your work with the UN Secretary General's panel on humanitarian financing and really looking at, at how money flows through the system. So we are hoping you are ready to uh, tackle some difficult questions. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Before we dive in, we want to ask you a question that we're going to be putting to every guest on our show uh, as we try to rethink what the humanitarian aid sector could look like. So what is one weird quirk in the humanitarian world that to you just makes absolutely no sense? Doesn't seem logical. Well, for me, it's the intermediation that goes on in our system. You know, we've got countless different institutions that have evolved sometimes with very good reasons, but today just feel like a um, overly complex system for moving money or shifting power and, I think we really need a, a reboot if we're going to make the system better fit for purpose. What I have always found to be kind of immediately strange is in no other sector in the world would you have the same sets of agencies assessing the needs, responding to those needs, and then reporting back on the quality of their response, which would anywhere else be considered a conflict of interest, but in the humanitarian sector is just perfectly normal. I think the only place in the world where you would see logos on a latrine <laughs> is in the refugee or IDP camp. I, I have been in many, many of them in my career, as I'm sure both of you have as well. Every time you go in, you see whether it's a UNICEF logo or a Save the Children logo, or sometimes, because Oxfam does a lot of wash, even an Oxfam logo on a latrine. I can only imagine what the people using that latrine must think of the fact that they have to see an NGO logo every time they, they do their business. Um, but, you know, it flows like that illogicality flows from the business model, flows from this fact that, as you said, Danny, um, people have to brand down to the camp level on where their money flows in order to kind of claim credit, to plant their flag for what they're doing, even if that means putting a sticker on a latrine. You know, there have been these longstanding uh, challenges with the sector for decades among them, the ones we've just mentioned. Uh, and now the world is just being so shaken up by, by as I mentioned, COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. And there feels like there's some real impetus for change in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Um, so to your mind, what is the most kind of pertinent, urgent wake-up call that these recent developments have forced? Uh, like, what is the rethink that needs to happen right now? I think this moment, as you say, that you know, where where you know, the, the challenge of responding to coronavirus and Black Lives Matter uh, have, for me, really sharpened the focus on money and power mm. and how those flow through our system. 
money because you know we are living through potentially the great reversal when it comes to progress on on poverty and vulnerability where you know it's very likely that at the end by the end of the year more people will have died of hunger caused by covid-19 than the disease itself and yet the resources that have been made available to address that vulnerability are tiny and so the very contradiction that we've known has that has laid at the heart of the international humanitarian system i.e. that this is relatively small amounts of money that are hardly solving the problem have been brought to bear now i think we are facing arguably the biggest humanitarian emergency that our generation has seen um and the response has been uh, you know pitiful in many ways and especially if you work for a civil society organization many of us are still waiting months on for donor money to flow through the system to trickle down through the UN and other inter- intermediary institutions to get to not even just us but to the frontline responders who are best placed you know better placed than ever before because of the mobility constraints to be able to respond and then of course power you know for me uh, at Oxfam in particular i think one of the great learnings the really important learnings about from Haiti for us was about the importance for institutions like ours to be conscious of power to be aware of how power and the abuse of power works and i think black lives matter is a is a wake up call around building the next generation of institutions that put equality inclusion racial justice at their heart particularly in in the development or humanitarian sector because in many ways many of our institutions have grown out of the colonial project and so we owe it to that legacy to pay sort of double attention if you will to how race and power um work or you know, interact in our own sector so you know these are all you know eternal issues but i think this is the moment where we have to tackle how money flows and how power works in our sector and i think that's such a that there's such a an interesting convergence right now between these two di- dimensions that on the one hand we have the traditional business model which does concentrate a lot of the 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 power and the money into the big organizations and um and covid is putting that under strain for all the reasons that you've just said that it is really that business model has really struggled to deliver resources to the front lines um and my colleague patrick says and i wrote a blog post about that a few uh, a few weeks ago you're just looking at the scant amounts of money that have reached frontline organizations even as the big traditional organizations have have received the the bulk of the of the humanitarian donor funding um and that in turn and reinforces these unequal power dynamics that it's very difficult for frontline organizations to have more of a voice to have more influence when they don't have access to the resources within the existing business model um what i find interesting and what i'm i'm curious for your take on is is this going to change that because i had hoped you know and i i had kind of expected and hebes written about this as well back in the spring that you know the the limitations of the current crisis the inability to move people around the world as easily the inability to deploy teams um because every country is stretched everywhere so you can't really surge i thought that might be the thing that forces uh, a rethink and a new approach to how the system is being financed and instead i think what we've seen is a doubling down that everyone has kind of retreated to their familiar corners and worked through their familiar systems so you know, what's you know what's your take on what it would you know what it would require to begin changing some of that and are you optimistic based on what you're seeing that you know maybe there is some movement in that direction I'm optimistic um from what I'm seeing certainly from what what's happening around the Oxfam confederation and some of it out is just out of necessity I mean I yeah. remember reading yeah. very early on in the 
uh, in the pandemic um, about uh, what was happening in Zaatari refugee camp in Jordan, where you know we want we and others wanted to mount a, a, a response around public health, around hand washing, and uh, we couldn't get anyone in because there was sort of such severe lockdown. But it turned out that we had I think about half a dozen Oxfam Jordan staff members who lived near enough to the camp. None of them, you know, I think they worked in IT and admin, but so none of them had public health training. But you know, very quickly, our colleagues in Amman did some remote training for those folk who then led our response in the camp. And and I thought, you know, that's, again, out of necessity, we are becoming hyper-local, if you will. Um, and if you, you know, I think there that is the journey that all of us are, are on. It was, came out, I mean, to me, that was the big message out of the World Humanitarian Summit about the importance of localization. And if ever there was a reminder of the critical importance of having first responders close to um, where the need is, is uh, this is it. And I'm also optimistic about, you know, the impediments to travel leading to a fundamental rethink about how, you know, NGOs or the entire sector work. You know, at Oxfam, we've hardly had anyone travel for six months. And that's been a great discipline in, in terms of asking ourselves, do we need to move people uh, in the ways that we have traditionally done so? I do think we have to in the future. I'm not saying that every response will necessarily be local, because I think one of the value adds of a network like ours is that ability to build from below, but also act beyond borders. That, you know, the, the sort of progress that we need to make towards a more just, sustainable world isn't going to happen just through local action alone. I think it's got to need that sort of glue that connects it across, you know, in solidarity with others just at scale that can then, you know, challenge bigger institutions, especially at the global level. Um, but the way that we all do that, the way that we've assumed we've had to do it, I think, will change. And, and I hope coronavirus is the sort of tipping point, if you will. What's interesting is that, I mean, I heard you once talk about the sexual abuse scandal in the same kind of language, which is, um, you know, we got forced into the journey. It just so happened to be the right journey. Um, and I would agree that, uh, and maybe the reason that in the past reforms haven't been, um, uh, well, they've never become reality because the system wasn't optimal, but it was still working. And now it's gotten to the point where, from my point of view, the system is just not viable anymore on all, no matter which way you cut it. So you talked about the money financially, we're about to see huge cuts likely to um, overseas development assistance, and yet um, the needs are going to be skyrocketing. So you're going to have huge shortages. Uh, operationally, you've just talked about how complicated it is, and Jeremy was talking about, you know, how do you how do you surge when the crisis is everywhere? And then ethically, all of the questions around power that are now that are now unavoidable. So for me, it's gotten to the point where there is no, you know, it's no longer an option. It it is uh, inevitability. And yet, you know, I wrote a piece, um, uh, I think it was in June, so kind of a couple months into the pandemic, to kind of look at how COVID was going to transform humanitarianism, because at the beginning, that was the feeling, right? This was going to be, there would be a before and after COVID, and everything was going to change, nothing would ever be the same. And then you started looking at the reality, and in fact, you know, so one hypothesis was this was going to transform the business model because... Uh, donors would be looking to fund the agile, small organizations that are on the ground. And yet we saw, as Jeremy mentioned, all of the money continuing to go to, in fact, going even more to the big actors, um, that this was going to be the heyday for locally led humanitarian response. And yet from the interviews that I did, local actors felt like nothing had really changed for them. And so I just wonder how you see the kind of force of the status quo 
and how representative your experience of this change actually happening on the ground is more broadly. Well, again, I am optimistic. And in some ways, it feels a bit like what I presume the Asian tsunami of 2004 felt like for the sector, but with different implications. You know, if you if you look, for example, at what happened in 2005, five, six, certainly in the INGO sector is huge amounts of, of new income comes to, through a small set of actors who then scaled up rapidly. And it was a sort of proof of concept of the, of the, of the need or the importance of that sort of international system to deliver aid and expertise. Um, in some ways, I, I think this will be a, the, sort of as great a disruption, but it'll, it'll lead us to, um, you know, it won't be perfect, but it'll lead us towards further localization and further investment in, in, in capacity closer to the ground. And in some ways, look, I'm sanguine about it because for me, the, the job at hand, I've been 18 months here at Oxfam, I'm clear about what our mission is going to be, which is to try to lead by example here. Um, you, as you say, I think Haiti um, was a really important lesson for us around the nature of our organisation. And we've made some changes, but we want to go further in terms of shifting power and shifting resources. And that's it's, it's already been difficult. It was difficult before COVID, but in some ways, uh, we are committed to this journey of trying to fundamentally change the nature of our own sort of Oxfam system, if you will. And it comes back to what I was like, making about this, the point I was trying to make about 1942, which is we predate the aid system. And in some ways, our aspiration is to become a, a global network that can last long after the aid system is wound up. And that you know, again, it's going to be painful because we are, for example, uh, over the next few years, going to be changing our sort of operational footprint where we're drawing from direct operational um, activity in, in, in several countries. But in others, we are going to be increasing our, um, our unrestricted investment so that we can offer safe, quality, holistic programming um, in some of the most fragile contexts in the world. And we're also diversifying our own network, you know, Oxfam founded in, in Great Britain. As we expanded into an international confederation, we became a network of affiliates. Those affiliates happen to be only in the global north. In recent years, Oxfam has, has, has increased its southern presence by, you know, there have been Oxfams in South Africa, in Mexico, in Brazil. Our ambition now is to diversify that network further. So again, if you look at us in a few years' time, I hope we really will resemble that sort of next-gen social justice network that will still do operational things that will be able to scale or surge, as you say, Jeremy, um, but doesn't do so in a way that um, limits the ability of local actors to um, to have sort of self-determination, if you will. I'm really interested and intrigued by this idea of the future of the big INGO model being a sort of global social justice network with an operational component to it, as opposed to you know the big sort of operational component uh, standalones that we see now in most NGOs, um, you know, for Oxfam moving in that direction, partly, I think it's, it's, you know, your own organizational history and culture, but partly also it's been prompted by this, uh, this, this funding crisis and reputational crisis that Oxfam has been through over the past few years. It's kind of necessitating some change, um, you know, for organizations that haven't faced that, do you think they have an incentive to go in the same direction or kind of if, if that is the future or a future for international NGOs, What's the forcing function that's going to lead people there? I think there's a structural forcing function that you see if you look at other parts of the global economy. So 
I often look at other international entities, especially in the corporate world, and look, see how they've evolved. You know, take a Coca-Cola, for example, founded in, in Atlanta, operated through direct country operations in many much of the global south, but increasingly operates through franchises. Um, and or if you look at the PwCs or the McKinsey's of the world, tremendous growth in southern um, entities that have come in as equal members um, of the network, if you will, and. Um, so one forcing function in some ways, I think, is that the world is changing around us, just as sort of economic and geopolitical balances are shifting. Um, I hope so too will the sort of civil society landscape in terms of where money and power is held. And that, that has to happen. I think the other is around um, donor behavior and um, you know, forcing some of the institutions to modernize. And of course, the third factor, which you know, I celebrate, and it's sort of it's to your point, Heber, about the Black Lives Matter movement, which is that people taking power calling out bad behavior and uh, neo-colonial behaviors. Um, we need that because that's the sort of check against the sort of complacency that I think sometimes we're guilty or we have been guilty of. So can you walk us through what it looks like to try to change an organization from the inside the way you're doing? Because I talk about rethinking humanitarianism all the time and I, and I feel like people are looking at me thinking, we get the vision, but we have no idea how to make it a reality. And it feels so far removed from the current state of play to say we're going to withdraw from 18 countries. I mean, that's huge. So how did you how did you do, how did you get there? Um, and and I suppose what pushback did you get along the way? You must uh, this must not have been smooth sailing. Yeah, it, it hasn't been, but it's been better in some ways than I had expected. I mean, right from even before I, you know, I, when I applied for this role, I said, Look, you've had a safeguarding crisis that you need to address, but really your fundamental challenge is, is you need to reimagine what you're for and how you add mm. value in the rest of the 21st century. Mm. I didn't even think I'd get an interview, and, and yet here I am. And that's, I think, because the Oxfam GB board realised that this sort of fundamental change was the best way to respond. Um, I also think, you know, if I think about conversations with my confederation colleagues when we come together as, as, a, as a network, the last 18 months have been uh, far more cohesive and productive than I th had expected. Because I think in our case, maybe we're, we're unusual. We, we, we really do share this sort of drive towards reform and modernization because, the, you know, the platform um, uh, has been burning in some ways for us. And we, want to, we need to show that uh, we are modernizing and adapting and learning from the past. Um, but the, the, other, the other bit that's been really important for us is we are multi-mandate or very broad. We're not a single issue organization. And so for us, it's been about thinking, well, we don't want to retreat into becoming a single issue organization. There are plenty of others who, who do a great job in their own areas of specialism. But how do we retain a focus and show clear value add? And for us, that journey has led us to think about fragile contexts and you know, the most difficult operational environment. So we're, you know, increasingly those areas, those countries we're going to be investing more in um, are the Yemens of the world or the Syrias of the world, the DRCs of the world, where I think um, local capacity is weak, definitionally in some ways, if you're talking about a fragile context, where INGOs can and do add value. And where I think for me, the sort of penny dropped when I visited Yemen last year, where I saw almost sort of the, the, the Oxfam aspiration work at its potentially at its best because we were there delivering humanitarian programs in the north and the south um, and in hugely difficult contexts 
um, with all sorts of, of challenges, but delivering life-saving work, if you will. At the same time, um, you know, to me, I encountered these examples of the sort of protection work that colleagues were doing, often with local partners. So it wasn't just about piping water or building the toilets with the logos, Jeremy, mm. but it was also about making sure that we are taking protection seriously and that we are taking civil society strengthening seriously. And then the the, the third bit of the sort of Oxfam puzzle, if you will, um, or the Oxfam offer is, you know, back in the UK, we're taking the UK government to court to challenge the legality of arms sales to the Saudi regime um, because of the humanitarian impact in Yemen of those of those weapons and, and ammunitions. And if you take that together, you get... Um, the sort of the role that we can play, that we are there to do the sort of human interventions in a sort of holistic way. But above country, if you will, we're also adding value in terms of standing up and, and speaking out. Um, it, it's always full of all sorts of tensions. And to your point, Heber, you know, n- not everyone um, has exactly the same vision. But I think in, in Oxfam, may, again, maybe we're unusual. We The sort of the stars have aligned broadly enough around a certain vision, which I do think we, we share and we're committed to trying, trying out. And I imagine part of the challenge there for you as a CEO is that you, know, you have to do all these things. You have to move towards uh, a, a, a big, compelling vision for the future of the organization. But you also have a change management process. You have to keep the lights on. You have to meet your payroll every month. Um, you, know, you have to do the day-to-day business of running a big bureaucracy. So you know, how do you how do you how do you decide when you're close enough to that vision or you, you you've gotten there and how do you approach those trade-offs of kind of the, the deeper transformation with the day-to-day practicalities of the organization yeah that I'm grappling with that as we speak you know we are in the middle of a very difficult and um, uh, uh, painful change process in Oxfam GB where we've unfortunately had to reduce the uh, you know several hundred posts here in in Oxfam in the UK Um that's never easy because these are amazing colleagues who are deeply passionate about our mission. Um, but in, in some ways, in order to keep the lights on today and to give ourselves the best chance of thriving in the future, I think we we have to change. And that's, you know, in our case, it's also about shifting resources to other parts of the network so that we don't become so, or we don't remain so sort of heavy in the North, in the global North. Um, I think it's, um, also about um, being clear about, you know, the, the sort of the journey that we're on. And that's, to me, that's as, as as important to be clear with our supporters as it is with ourselves. And, you know, in the, again, I don't know about other, other contexts, but in the UK, if you look at the proportion of people who've said they donate to international development charities, um, that proportion has fallen from 30 odd percent five years ago to 19 percent late last year. And that's before COVID. Um, and so we're in a in an environment in which you know trusts in charities and NGOs has fallen, where uh, there is a very competitive market, and in the UK and I suspect elsewhere as well, um, the sort of interest and support for international development is falling. And so again, one of the value adds of INGO networks like ours, who can bring unrestricted income to the to the picture, is um, is that we can inspire people who are our supporters to volunteer their time, donate their clothes to our shops in the UK or donate money to us. Um, and we also, you know, part of this is also about r- refreshing the offer, if you will, um, because, again, there's lots of evidence to suggest that particularly for international development, donors are a bit tired of 
the sort of the story of, of, of broken Africa or the messaging of, of helpless people. And we need to refresh that as well. And so there is a, a complex set of challenges there as well around organizational sustainability. Um, and and one, one, one other sort of anecdote or, or, um, is around, you know, that comes back to the sort of the value add of, of organizations or networks like ours. I remember early on in my tenure going to see Filippo Grandi, um, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And, um, you know, UNHCR is a massive player and often, you know, organizations like Oxfam are subcontractors. But Filippo was very clear. He said, look, in some ways I'm jealous of Oxfam because you guys have unrestricted income. You have a massive supporter base who you can mobilize to not just raise money, but to campaign on the issues that, you know, that matter to you and them. Um, and you should play to those strengths. Mm. And, you know, this is soon after I'd arrived at Oxfam and, and it was trying to find that sort of, you know, where's the source of the confidence for organizations like this? And I think part of that has to be about what we can bring, which is not just unrestricted money, not just this ability to spend restricted money, but it's also this idea that we are a network of, of people committed to these issues. You keep coming back to that social justice network, and I think that's probably an under um, under explained uh, part of the rethink that I think this moment is demanding. And by that, I mean, um, if you look at the big crises that that have just faced the world, the answer was not bags of rice and tarpaulin, right? Like in the face of COVID, what people needed was equal access to hospitals. And we saw that the um, your social class affected how hard you were hit um, in the face of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was, if it had happened anywhere else in the world, would have been considered on the verge of a humanitarian crisis in terms of what was happening on the streets and the protests and the police reactions and so on. Um, again, the need there was social justice it wasn't um, service delivery. And and so there's a point at which I was just giving um, an interview about the state of the humanitarian system. And, you know, there's this question around relevance and it says, how well is humanitarian aid kind of uh, um, uh, performing on this question of relevance? And, and then you have to ask yourself, well, what are the biggest needs today? And to what extent is humanitarianism responding to them? And, and then you end up in a social justice place and not mm. in a humanitarian aid delivery place. And yet that completely transforms the traditional conception of humanitarianism. So how how do you how does that work? You know, for all these humanitarians that have for whose very identity is is shaped around the idea that they are objective, apolitical, neutral, etc., suddenly being thrust into all of these issues that for you are very fundamental and core to the way it has to work. Let me say it before I go on to answer that, that neutrality and independence and those core humanitarian principles are hugely important. And we do need, in, especially in this day and age, to protect them because there is value of having those sorts of actors. But for, for, from where I sit at Oxfam, um, I often end up going back to 1942, back to those eight people who started the Oxford Committee. And they did two things, but by implication, they did the third thing as well, which to me is really important, as relevant today as it was in 1942. They raised money and 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 transferred it to the Greek Red Cross, by the way. They didn't, I mean, Oxfam didn't have staff, didn't have professional uh, humanitarian workers for many years uh, after that. And so they just transferred it to the local actor, the Greek Red Cross, to deliver the, the food relief. And then they set about writing letters to the Churchill government to stop the policy of, of blockading Nazi-occupied uh, uh, bits of Europe that were causing the famine 
in the first place. So they were campaigning. And they did both of those things, but in the, they also did the third thing, which is, you know, in the deep, dark days of the Second World War, they were building civil society in Britain. They were, you know, social capital, bridging capital, building this value of civic action, you know, big people in voluntary action. And in some ways, I think COVID and 2020 have huge parallels to that moment. You know, we are living in an, in a, in an era where, you know, it's, we have unconscionable levels of suffering of unnecessary um, death and um, livelihoods being um, ruined, which we can do something about and we have to, and we have an obligation to take action. But we know that, as you say, bags of rice ain't going to do it. And so we have to go and challenge the systems and structures that are driving poverty, injustice, and inequality. And again, to me, you know, I take um, huge pride in some ways of working for an organisation that has stood up, you know, do published a... um, a report calling out the excessive profits being made by the world's largest companies that have had almost windfalls from COVID. You know, if you take Amazon, for example, um, the share price and the, the sort of the value of the, of the shareholdings um, have skyrocketed. And yet we're struggling to feed people who are going hungry. You know, Jeff Bezos could pay every single Amazon worker a $100,000 bonus and still have more money than he did at the start of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I'm proud to be part of an organization that stands up and talks about those sort of things or stands up and talks about the need for a people's vaccine that's free for everyone on the planet and not hogged by the richest countries in the world. I'm proud of an organization that that challenges policies on debt and, and challenges governments and private sector lenders. But is, it, is that the action. future of humanitarianism? No, no, I don't know about that. I think the future of Oxfam is about to try to, to do both of those things and connect the dots along mm. the way while also making sure which bits of our system are best placed to do what. Mm-hmm. So in Indonesia or in Kenya or in South Africa or in Mexico, we don't need um, much help or resourcing from external to get on with the job. But it's really important that in all of those places, we have a, a sort of member of the network. And if you take Turkey, for example, Oxfam Turkey, by the way, um, is a is Kedev an amazing women's rights organization that's been around for many decades that has chosen to join the Oxfam Confederation. And I, you know, again, that's our future that we are, we become this global network um, who can deploy when needed, uh, surge when needed, but also challenge and speak truth to power at scale. Um, now, then that's, I'm not, I'm not being naive enough to say that everyone needs to be like that because, you know, the ICRC should not necessarily change overnight to become a, uh, a debt campaigning organization. <laughs> I think that's um, a fairly safe bet. <laughs> I, I'm, so I, I'm intri- I think it's an interesting parallel what you're saying now to um, what you relate about the comment from Filippo that you, the the conditions that come on the funding you get really define the space that an organization has available to it. So Oxfam in part can do some of those things because you've traditionally had a large private donor base. You know, you're not principally dependent on big institutional donors or exclusively dependent on big institutional donors for, for your resources. And I think that, you know, that probably is a message for, for aid organizations, whether NGO or UN, that you're both diversifying your funding base, which is not an easy thing to do, um, that opens up this kind of opportunity. But I think it's also a message to the donor community to be more uh, intentional about the conditions and the expectations that they're placing on their partners. Um, you know, coming from a donor background myself, I think the donors probably aren't intentional enough 
about that. I think they, um, you know, they would like to see organizations change in certain ways, but maybe don't do enough to recognize the ways their own funding, their own kind of conditions either enable or, or, or impede that kind of change. Yeah. Look, when I was a member of the UN high level panel on humanitarian financing, that was certainly one of my takeaways from that experience was that donors do have a huge responsibility here. It's not the, they're not the only actors that have to change their behaviors, but I think donors do. And part of it is, you know, if you, if you sort of broaden the scope to the development sector more generally, I think institutional and private foundation donors or philanthropy need to be clear about when they see civil society as a means and when they see it as an end and whether they see it as both. Mm. And it's because, you know, if we are simply implementing partners, you know, for humanitarian aid for a long-term development project competing with, say, private sector contractors, it's not particularly interesting and it doesn't speak to the power and value of civil society. But if you see a strong, resilient, independent, vocal civil society as an end in itself, um, and you and you're committed to that strengthening project. You might behave differently. You might do different. You know, you might fund differently with more unrestricted or core resourcing. You might, you know, build in that flexibility and adaptability. Again, COVID response. So much of our of colleagues' early days in this COVID response was spent talking to donors about repurposing existing grants. And in some cases, that was relatively easy to do because donors understood and said, you know, go on, just get on with it, deliver, deliver. But in some other cases, it was more difficult because you have to go through the bureaucratic machinations Mm -hmm. of of a system that's been built on conditionality. Yeah. And to that point, there there was a report, I think, in The New York Times that USAID's COVID funding was delayed pretty significantly because they were arguing amongst themselves over granting requirements. (laughs) These, you know, we kind of we get in our own way sometimes. And this is maybe just to conclude, Danny, like the the thing that I keep struggling with in my mind, you know, you're talking about this incremental approach that you're trying to take within Oxfam, but it also depends on so many other players for it to have the kind of wide scale um, impact that I think many people believe this moment demands in terms of transformation. And um, just after George Floyd's death, we, we hosted a discussion at the New Humanitarian and had a number of Black American activists there who, you know, were basically talking the language of revolution. We have to tear it all down. This whole system is is corrupt. It is colonial. And there's no way of fixing it. We just have to start over. Um, and, and I'm struck because we're about to, um, as you know, publish a series of um, commentaries on the future of aid, and and we had asked you to submit one, and it and and there was a line in it that really struck me, which is that we don't have to wait for how did how did you put it? We don't have to wait for the uh, systematic overhaul to start doing better, and yet that's really hard. So, what advice would you give to um, others that are kind of thinking about this uh, on the way forward, and I and keeping in mind that there are all those people that are kind of ready to burn the whole thing down. Yeah. Well, I think I, I'm not going to bet on whether change is more likely to come from within or without. Um, because I think we, you know, each of us, each institution needs to work out, or each person needs to work out where they might fit, you know, how best are they placed to um, sort of contribute to the project. And it might be that, you know, in some cases, you know, taking power, a radical rethink, entirely new institutions that work in different ways with different incentives uh, might be exactly what we need. But I, but on the other hand, you know, I happen to work for one of the larger and you know bits of, of, a, of an institution in this in this ecosystem, and I think that's the responsibility that we have, which is those of us who are within the system need to to transform and to change as as best as we can, and that's the 
that's the sort of journey that we're on. It's going to be very difficult to your point earlier, Jeremy, to know, you know, when and how we've been successful. The mm. project, and especially because mm. this, is, this is going to be ongoing, but it has to happen. And it comes back to, for me, I keep coming back to what, what's the, what is civil society for? Mm. Um, and it, yes, we are there to, you know, as a force of compassion, as an actor to get things done when states and markets have failed. Um, but we're also, we also have these other roles that are really important and in, in some ways even more important today than they were, say, a few years ago because of, of democratic decline, of closing civic space, of collusion between political and corporate elites and um, the rise of nationalism. And so I think each of us, each institute, particularly in civil society, have to work out what, what's our role in this picture and, and, and be bold and be brave about where we want to um, uh, to to add value, and again, I'm I've been spending all of this time talking about Oxfam, which is a peculiar and you know, and in some ways an outlier on on the rest of civil society. Right, the vast majority of civil society is informal. It's small. It's um, it's networked in a different way. Um, it works um, through through different processes, and and I think we need to celebrate that diversity and sort of build off it, if you will. Um, but it can't come at the cost of what we started, where we started this conversation, which is a sort of suboptimal landscape where we just have too many people doing too many things that confuse and and sort of block progress. And that's the it comes back to your fundamental question: Is this a tipping point? Is this a turning point? Um, I certainly hope so, and we will do, and I hope I will do as much to make it that as I can. Danny, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation today. It's been really, really insightful. We want to end on a question we're going to put to every guest, which is, what is your million-dollar wave magic wand idea for the humanitarian sector? What would be the kind of big, radical, maybe unimaginable uh, idea or shift that you think could have uh, a hugely meaningful impact on the work that we do? Can it be billions or trillions? Uh, sure, don't limit. You can add as many as you like. I think you can go to town. As many zeros as you want. A, a global fund for social protection. I think, you know, there's been increasing talk about universal basic income, about social protection flaws. And I think, you know, one of the lessons I hope from COVID is that we do need to get serious about what we as humans offer each other as a basic minimum. And we need to fund it. And it won't cost much. It'll be, it'll just, be trillion, just billions probably. and trillions. But far less than we've been spending on on fiscal interventions to prop up airline industries or whole other sectors in, in recent months. So, Jeremy, when you're back in government one day, you can keep that in mind. I'm sure I'll have trillions at my discretion, yeah. <laughs> Danny, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thank you both very much. This was the first episode of Rethinking Humanitarianism, a podcast series exploring the future of crisis response, brought to you by The New Humanitarian and the Center for Global Development. If you've got any thoughts on Danny's million or trillion dollar idea or anything else you heard today, do get in touch with us. You can tweet your comments at CGDev and at New Humanitarian with the hashtag RethinkingHumanitarianism. Or if you're feeling a bit more adventurous, record an audio note and send it by email to RH Podcast. That's RH for Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast at thenewhumanitarian.org and then we can actually play it on the next episode. 
And in that next episode, we're going to be looking at how we got to this point. If the humanitarian sector is a kind of flawed superhero, then we will be exploring the Marvel-style origin story. <laughs> the Rethinking Humanitarianism series is hosted on the New Humanitarians podcast channel. So make sure you get all of the future episodes by searching for The New Humanitarian on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like what you're hearing, please review it, please share it, send us some feedback. As you probably figured by now, uh, Jeremy and I are both kind of uh, wonky and love this topic to death. So if you're interested in more, you can head to thenewhumanitarian.org where we've got a whole series of articles on rethinking humanitarianism or check out cgdev.org where Jeremy and his team have been doing a whole whack of research on humanitarian reform. Thanks so much for listening in on the Rethinking, Humanitarian and the rethinking Humanitarianism podcast. Please join us next time. And we'll figure out how to say humanitarianism without stumbling. We really will God, every <laughs> single time. All right. Thank you all for listening. I am looking forward to seeing where this new podcast takes us. Uh, to subscribe to The New Humanitarian, just search for it wherever you listen to podcasts or click the links in the show notes or visit tnh.news podcast. All right, we'll see you next time.